am on the right path. You know, when you found something and when you face death or a situation like that and you have no fear, for me, that was confirmation. Okay, maybe I have found something that is worthwhile. (laughs) So while other people were like, I will never do it again, I was just like, okay, I'm good. This is it. I'm where I belong. Hello, welcome back to episode three of series two of our awards nominated podcast, of course, a sideways look at life at sea, where we delve into the stories of the people who spend their lives at sea and understand more about an industry that is so often out of sight, out of mind, yet is critical to everything we do. This episode is brought to you by Lloyd's Maritime Academy, providing a lifelong career pathway for maritime professionals. Helen, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? I'm I'm great. Helen, since the last podcast, we've had our general meeting. We have. And how did it go? Yeah, it went really well. Um, we had our general meeting up in Liverpool at the Hilton Hotel up there. We had really good turnout in terms of membership and loads of engagement, which is wonderful. So um, alongside that, we discussed, debated and passed 12 motions, which is absolutely huge. And we've had our campaign around a just transition for maritime workers approved by members and that motion was passed. And we will now be working on that over the next four years. Absolutely. And of course, we launched our survey about the just transition, the mapping our maritime future survey, which members can fill in members of Nautilus International, members of the Nautilus Federation. Uh, Mm -hmm. They can find all that information on creating change on the Nautilus website. So yes, so it was a fantastic event. I mean, I really enjoyed myself. Great to catch up with members as well. Obviously, you know, that's, that's who we work for. And it's great to be able to engage with them and tell them about the work that we're doing on their behalf. Absolutely. And to hear all the good things that they've been up to as well. So, yeah, it's always really nice to kind of share information, isn't it? And just hear about the issues that are concerning members and, you know, maybe some of the really good, fun, exciting things that they're up to as well. Absolutely. Now, coming on to our podcast episode today. Now, Helen, Mm -hmm. can I ask you a question? Um, Sure. Is there something that you are genuinely terrified of? Terrified? I mean, no, I am Australian after all. I boss it. I wrestle crocodiles. There you have it, folks. Australians have no fears. No fears fears. whatsoever. (laughs) No, I grew up with snakes, you know, spiders, (laughs) crocodiles, all the rest of it. But no, seriously, I think if there was anything that I was scared of when I was in New Zealand a few years ago, when I was a teenager, I was full of bravado and thought that I would do bungee jumping. And I realized pretty quickly when I was at the end of that massive big bridge in Queenstown that I'm actually quite scared of throwing myself off heights. So, (laughs) and you, how about you, Robin? No, heights is definitely (laughs) something I'm afraid of. I mean, I do get sort of, I do feel a bit dizzy standing in balconies from time to time. Um, But someone, I, there was a, a, a an episode, um, if you've ever watched The Big Bang Theory, where Sheldon says, yes. a fear of heights is illogical. A fear of falling is prudent and evolutionary. So I like to say that I'm actually afraid of falling rather than afraid of heights. But there we go. I think um, I can agree with you there. 
post my bungee jumping experience. Yeah, I wouldn't even get that far. Um, Our podcast guest today, I think, typifies someone who felt the fear and did it anyway. And this podcast is with Lungi Makunu, who is the first African woman to sail to the Arctic. I began by asking Lungi a bit about her background. Um, so, um, yes, I grew up in South Africa. Um, I was partly raised in the rural parts of South Africa, and then we later moved to Johannesburg. So Johannesburg is an inland city, so you can imagine how far I, away I am from the ocean. I mean, as a child growing up, um, despite all of the issues that South Africa has, I think the biggest tool that um, my mom gave me was to encourage me to dream, you know. So she always told me, like, no matter what my passion is, I need to be able to pursue it. I'll never know if something is going to click with me or if it's not, if I don't try. So I was always given that room to dream. And I feel like now that is the biggest blessing that I've had in my life. And that is in comparison with other people um, that I grew up with that didn't necessarily have that same drive or that same push from their parents, you know. So uh, because of me trying things ever so often, I've always been open-minded, never been afraid of failure. I just push myself all the time. So yeah, that's how I got started. And it's all thanks for mom. <laughs> thanks to your mom. And I, and I wanted to, to touch on that. I mean, what influence do you think growing up in a post-apartheid South Africa? I'm sure when you were growing up, there was probably a lot of hope, a feeling that actually this was a new dawn. And do you think that maybe fed into sort of your mother's influence on you and, and your sort of pushing boundaries and being able to dream? I think um, maybe it's also because of the oppression that my mom experienced that um, she felt such a strong drive to push me in that direction because she never had an opportunity to dream. So like, uh, I did grow up in the opportunity phase where everything was just opening up. So yes, um, I may have not been aware of a lot of things, but I was equally grateful of how those before me paved the way for me, you know, to be able to dream, to go to the schools that I went to, you know, just like the smallest things like that. Like even at my school, it was a rainbow nation. You had all kinds of nationalities, you know. So to be able to experience that, now that I look back, I realize that not many people had that opportunity. So I was really grateful for the struggle and what we went through because then it gave me an opportunity to prosper. I think that's so interesting, this idea of that struggle and how that informs who you are. And I suppose probably builds that element of resilience, which will come on and, and talk about some of the, the challenges that you face and sort of the barriers that you've knocked down. But you, you mentioned there about dreams, right? And I think that's something that we can all, well, hopefully we can all sort of associate with. We all have dreams, but you never had a dream. Well, certainly young Lungi never had a dream to go to sea. So what was your dream when you were growing up? <laughs> I wanted to be a pilot. Um, okay. I wanted to be a pilot or uh, be an astronomer. Uh, but when I went, I, I remember, I think I must have been like 16, when I went for my full medical 
um, to for pilot training. I even took photos. <laughs> my mom took me for photos. And uh, because of my eyesight at the time, um, I didn't make the cut. So that was devastating for me. I was like, what's going to happen now? Like, I, I didn't even know what to do. So, I mean, in a situation like that, you know that the generation before us, they were more like into like traditional careers. So um, I obviously had to try and look for something a, a little bit secure. So I went into economics and accounting. So you wanted to be a pilot. You can't take that opportunity because of your eyesight. You then go into to banking and go down the economics route. But then you actually go back then, I suppose, in a sense, to travel. Is it, was that the ambition? Was it always sort of travel? Was that the big thing you wanted to do? Yeah, the travel part of it, I still remember, like, I've always had this thing. I don't know if it's also, like, from PTSD, but I've always had this need to go to a place where nobody knows my name. (laughs) (laughs) There's a story there. Is there a reason behind that? I, I guess, well, I'm a child of divorce, so there's a lot of, like, you know, family drama, but I've just always had that, and I remember... I think post that pilot phase, I was looking into moving to Edmonton in Canada. Can you believe it? Like that was crazy. But I had that. Uh, But the reason why I started traveling quite a bit was due to the community work that I did. So in me trying to pave my way into being a pilot, I participated a lot in sports. I was actually at national level. Um, so post that, I discovered that the generation after me did not have that same upbringing, you know, that we used to go to the playground all the time, you know, like sports gave us some sort of discipline and I didn't have that. So I wanted to give back to the sport that raised me and that gave me that discipline. So I started getting involved with International Basketball Federation in Switzerland, started working with them, and that's how... I got into that full travel mode now where like almost every month we're traveling to other countries to promote. So I helped promote three on three basketball, which was streetball at the time. So we managed to get that recognized by the Olympics. Um, My other drive was like when I grew up, the first time I went to wheelchair basketball, it was really traumatic for me to see guys fall on wheelchair. Like your instinct is to jump and go help. And yet these guys didn't want that. They could get up by themselves. And at that point, I realized that it was wrong for us to be raised uh, separately because like the rules for wheelchair basketball and able-bodied basketball ex- are exactly the same. So why was there this division? So yeah, so I worked with the International Federation on that as well as the Wheelchair Basketball Federation. So a lot of travel. A lot of travel. (laughs) um, Yeah, so that led me to like a lot of sports conferences, including the Peace and Sport in Monaco by Prince Albert, where like I I think at the time those, um, I don't know if you recall, there were like refugees that were coming through Turkey and there was a child that was also that had also died. So during that time, as much as these people were settling in, while language is a barrier for them, the tool that we had as South Africa that united us was always through sport. 
So I carried that message like to help those refugees settle in so you could always, for them also to be able to deal with the traumas, you know, and just be able to settle into communities. So I started working on that, like as far as Germany. So that that was how actually I got into sailing. <laughs> I was at a conference, that Peace and Sport conference in Monaco, and I had five days to spare. And yeah, I decided why not go sailing. <laughs> All right, so, so yeah. you were so you were at the conference. You had you had a couple of days to spare. You decide just yeah. on a whim to try sailing in Monaco, and that was it. That was that was the start of the next the sort question, of the start was a question like, what would I do if if I wasn't afraid? Like if I had all the money, I had the opportunities, what would I do? And the one thing that I had all I had never done was to go offshore. So like, you know, like with school tours um over summer, like you get on these tour boats and stuff like that. But like I could never like go offshore offshore, you know. So it, it took a lot of uh, negotiating because it was winter number one. So everybody's off season in Europe. So I had to take a train from Monaco all the way up to northern France in Van. And I had to beg the school. There was literally only two people on the boat because they were like, this girl is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so can I, but can I ask you about this? Because you, you sort of touched on it there. Um, but you did have this fear of the sea. Yes, I did. I did. Why were you afraid? What was it? Was it just the unknown? I think it's like uh, it's inherited fears because sometimes we're scared of things that we don't even know why. You know, there's always that thing. Oh, black people can't swim. Oh, no, don't go into the ocean. Don't do this. It's dangerous and stuff like that. Yes, it's dangerous. But um, if you take the necessary precautions, then you're fine. So it's more of inherited or passed on fears actually yeah um because i like when i first did it like i couldn't understand for the life of me why i had been scared it felt like i had dropped myself of so much experience and fun you know and adventures Mm. So that's how I felt like 24 hours later, like, what the hell? So had you ever actually been in the ocean before going to the sailing boat in France? No, apart from like little tall boats at the right. coast in the Marinas, yeah, yeah. Like I, had, I hadn't even set foot on a sailing yacht. Like, right. so, yeah, I hadn't, no. So you have this fear, right? One of the expressions, my mum, who's afraid of many things, but tried not to pass on to me, is this idea of feel the fear and do it anyway, right? (laughs) I mean, I got some fears, but she did do a good job in trying to not pass them all on. At what point did you say to yourself, I'm quite sort of scared, I'm I'm a wee bit afraid, but I'm going to go and do it? Yeah, I mean, I was um, like, I still remember I arrived um, in Van and like the boat was waiting. I was shaking. And one, I didn't have the proper clothing and I was just like frozen by fear. And I was so lucky that my instructor, Dave Rogers, at the time, like he could tell and we we're still coming out of the marina. So he put me on the helm same time, you know, so that I, I get out of my head because like once you get stuck in your head, then it's like, what the heck, you know, you can't continue. So it's almost like you block yourself. So I think that act from him actually helped me deal with it. But it wasn't until the next day uh, when we were 
anchored, I think it was outside the island of Port. And I was just like, this is incredible. <laughs> I love it so much. But like, it wasn't as loud as that. It was like that quiet kind of joy, that sense of oneness with everything. It was just like, I was like, I want this for as long as possible. And that was it. That's how I decided that this was for me. And then you do go and train at UKSA, isn't that right? Yes, I did my yacht master at UKSA, yeah. And I suppose then from there, so so you, you have this initial experience, you then go and, and get the qualifications that you need. And then you decide to do this epic journey to the North Pole. Oh, it was a lot more work than that. <laughs> <laughs> Because number one, remember, I'm new to sailing. I know absolutely nothing. There's nobody around me who knows anything about sailing. So uh, because of my experience in basketball, I had to find this community and immerse myself in it. And one of the first events that I attended was the sailing festival in Spain. Um, in Bilbao. So I attended that. Like, it was all in Spanish, but because of my travel, like I could still like pick up a couple of things and understand. And then the other promise I made myself was that every three months I would make sure that I'm on a sailing boat. And while I'm inland, I had to do like theory courses. Or I mean, I'm not sure if Navisome is still around. It's an online platform for theory courses. So that's what I would do. So while I'm at home and working, I would focus on the theory and then make sure every three months that I'm out sailing. Uh, you know, how does this journey to the Arctic then come about? It was weird. Like I met my horn in Switzerland. A friend of mine got me a ticket and this guy had been to, he had done completed pole to pole and he's South African. So I was just like, and I just knew about his sailing at the time. So I was excited. A South African who's a sailor, yay. You know, <laughs> so I had no idea that like a few weeks later, I would come across a Twitter post and they're looking for voluntary crew for an Arctic expedition. I think um, at the time, I don't think it was the safest thing or safest decision I ever made because I only had a day skipper who who goes to the Arctic on a day skipper. You know, that is not right. But um, so I went through um, the application process and uh, made it. So I, I actually just came across it on Twitter. That's how. I did it and then um, we were just like training every other month. So we would go to like Rostock. We had to do like Polar Bay training, rifle training, every single thing related to being remote we had to do. Yeah, so I was just really fortunate to come across that post. But it was equally being open and trying to find opportunities to immerse myself in this new fraternity. Talk us through then the purpose behind the expedition, because it wasn't just for the sake of it. (laughs) Yeah, so the purpose of the expedition was because, remember, due to the melting sea ice, boats now were able to sail further north. And that was something that hadn't been attempted before. And then the second thing was obviously due to the melting ice and ice being able to reach further, it was to take samples and figure out like if there's any traces of plastic stuck in the ice to try and ascertain like how far back does this problem actually go, you know? So that was part of it. 
And then also there was, I believe, an Italian boat that sunk somewhere. I can't remember, but we actually had a sonar. Um, I think it belonged to the Italian Navy. So because of that sea ice, then we were, the attempt was that we would try and find the remains thereof. Okay. So it was those three top things. And so where did the expedition start from? Uh, we started from Rostock. Northern Germany. Okay, so Rostock, yeah. right the whole way then up to the to the North Pole. So how long did the expedition take altogether? I think two and a half months, two, about two and a half months, yeah. yeah. And what, what... The sailing bit wasn't that um, long. It, I think uh, the bulk of it was on land now, having to, um, to do the research, yeah. Right, and so tell me this, in, in terms of the whole expedition, I mean... Is there particular moments that really sort of stand out to you when you sort of remember that journey? Is there a particular moment that you... Of course. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity. I mean, for me, there's so many memories. But the one that stood out the most was obviously sailing through the fjords. That was just like amazing. Like I had never seen such landscape in my entire life. It was like like being in a live canvas, you know. It was such a piece of art. And then as we exited the European continent, there was like this double rainbow, almost like a standoff or some sort of gateway um, as we're approaching Bay Island. Um, and also just being able to see polar bears by the ne- with the naked eye, you know, and just Svalbard on its own, like it, it was so different. Like it was so exciting for me to see what untouched land looks like. And it made me realize like how horrible we actually are as human beings, you know, that we haven't taken care of our planet, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I want to touch on climate change. And, and, and I know that that's sort of a big passion for you. I, I want to touch that in a second. But I, I, just on, on the expedition itself, I mean, one of the things that we know from being at sea and, and we know that the oceans are unpredictable. Um, was there any moments? In, yeah, is there any moments in, in the journey that uh, were particularly hair raising, should I say? Of course, I had to jump into the cold act. <laughs> so what, why did you have to jump in? What happened? Because like um, the weather is so, it's so quickly changing there. We were stuck in a storm that was now predicted to last for about a week. And we're like, it was like maybe 35 to 45 knots of wind. While we were still in a pen-pen situation, but because of the forces, we're experiencing a lot of failures in the boat. Like our engine had failed. Uh, We had like steering issues. So we're using the secondary one. So we had to issue out a pen-pen for us to be towed. For any listeners who don't know what a pen-pen is, do you want to just briefly explain that? Um, Yeah, so a pen-pen means that we're not in any immediate danger, but the situation could escalate. So you can still handle it and salvage it. But like once it gets to May Day, then it's definitely a life or death situation. Like save me right now. 
We're very fortunate that the search and rescue team as well, but um, actually managed to come up. But because of like the, like, um, so it was current versus the wind. So you know that the, the wave height at that point is just ridiculous, right? So even for them, um, so because of the challenges of them having to land on the boat, we had to jump into the ocean and be hoisted up one by one into the helicopter. Wow. So it, it was like a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but luckily, I mean, as sailors, you know, those are things that are critical that you are trained on like continuously. Um, but like, I think another confirmation for me was how i was in that situation yes it was scary yes i had to jump in but there was this sort of peace within me where i was okay with whatever whatever the outcome was like how weird is that but like right, so, so ref- did, did you feel it did you feel like this is life or death yeah i mean having to jump into the cold arctic that's not that's not a joke <laughs> because hypothermia can yeah yeah of course yeah yeah like considering like the wind strength and the waves Mm. and um Mm. like the success of the mission was quite critical you know and yes it was successful but what could it could have gone the other way in that moment so um yeah (laughs) it was definitely scary but like just for me to be that calm in that situation was further confirmation that perhaps I'm on the right path. You know, when you found something and when you face like death or a, a situation like that and you have no fear, for me, that was uh, confirmation. OK, maybe I have found something that is worthwhile. So, Yeah. Like, so when other people were like, I will never do it again, I was just like, okay, I'm good. This is it. I'm, I'm where I belong. That's, I mean, that, that in and of itself is is incredible. I mean, you say about facing like sort of life or death situations, but actually most people probably don't necessarily face life or death situations, certainly not in their job. I mean, look, I suppose with, with, throughout this podca- podcast, we have talked to people that have been in really critical situations because it is the life of working at sea, yeah. which... I think as part of what we what we're trying to do with this podcast is to to show people how how critical the industry is, but also how dangerous it, it can be, because sometimes we we sort of we don't necessarily rec- recognize that, you know. So let me just go back then to the to the actual expedition. So you're you're lifted up, you're search and rescue come, you're taken to safety. Yeah. But you obviously uh, was that towards the end of the expedition or towards the start or how do you how do you finish the expedition? So it was um before we reached Svalbard, so the boat had to be towed in, so we had to wait for like a few days. But in the interim, that didn't stop us because, you know, there's like tow boats and stuff like that. So we still continued um, until our boat was brought back and then we were able to do more work. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean that 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 in and of itself, I think, is just it is just in, incredible in terms of going through all that that adversity. And I suppose, you know, linked to this, obviously, that we've we've talked about is that you are the first African woman to do this journey. I suppose what I'm wondering, how much of that was a motivation for you or was it just something that sort of happened? 
I didn't even know. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know until um I think there was a moment when my brother called me crying, <laughs> saying like they don't know what's happening. I'm all over the papers. They nodded at it up like it's going on. But luckily for me, it didn't affect me at all because I was already like off the grid. So like that was never my intention at all. So it was just, you know, a bonus thing. And I was grateful to be recognized for that, but it was never a factor. And actually, I don't like going back to it because I feel like it's done. You know, there's a lot more things that are more important and I understand why people still treasure it. But for me, it's like, it's done. Um, can we move on? Can we move on? <laughs> And actually, this is a perfect opportunity for us to move on in this interview as well, because I do, I did say I wanted to come back and talk about uh, climate change because you mentioned that was part of the, the 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 reason behind the expedition, and I know that it's something that you're quite passionate about. I suppose just give us a bit of an update in terms of what work you're doing and why you think that this is so important. So when I came back from the expedition, I sat in London with our chief risk officer, Mark Smith, and. So Mark Smith's question to me was, okay, Lungi, so you've gone on this expedition, you have education and experience in banking, how are you going to transfer the field uh, knowledge that you acquired into banking? And at the time, uh, I mean, it's still an issue even now, like in the finance sector where like there's little data related to climate, uh, climate risk and stuff like that. So I had to now try and find ways to translate that into banking. So that was my contribution. So I had both, uh, so what they call citizen scientists, because I'm not a scientist, but because of my interest in all of these research expeditions, then I have access to that information. So now it's to try and br bridge the gap between the two industries. And I personally feel that while we're all trying to do our best and tackle climate change, I feel like the finance and banking sector is would be most likely the most influential if they made decisions because they're the ones that give the money. So if you if you touch the money, that's when people actually start complying. And that's where I'm at at the moment. Uh, but besides that, I also start, because here at home, there's always that thing that it's something far away from us. And I understand why, because for somebody whose daily goal is to put bread on the table, like everything else is secondary. Number two, uh, we all the way in South Africa. So when Lungi starts talking about the polar regions, people don't particularly understand how does that affect them. It's so far, but actually it's not that far. Everything is interconnected. So I discovered that there was a gap in our curriculum, in our education. So I created content to try and educate the kids that every single thing that you do here, this is how it affects the bigger picture. And I actually didn't realize that I had made any difference until a 10 year old girl, actually, um, it was a closing ceremony, end of year ceremony. So she decided that she was going to speak to her elders in Soweto, like 
this girl got up on the stage and she started speaking and telling everybody, you know, everything that I had taught them. And for me, that was as though I had passed the baton on to somebody else. Mm. And it also showed me that people care. They just don't know how these things affect them, you know. So they don't know what fighting power they have, but they generally care about our planet. And that was truly inspirational to experience. You know, you're obviously doing a lot of this activism work in banking and finance and education. You know, how much are you still at sea? How, how much are you still sort of sailing versus how much are you doing sort of land-based? Having spoken to you over the last half an hour, I'm guessing it just depends how you feel. No, I, I've tried to. So my plan has always been to do at least like six months offshore and then right. um, use like the winter time to focus on my land-based activities. It's only that on Maiden, it, it, it actually took longer than that. So it kind of messed up <laughs> my plans. But also I, I'm, I'm very intentional about the kinds of sailing jobs that I take. It has to be aligned with my values as a person and it has to have some sort of mission. And that's part of the reason why I was part of Maiden, because we're raising funds for girls' education in STEM. So it wasn't just a lungi going to the U.S. and speaking while we docked, but we raised money and then we're actually able to give that money away. That was something really profound to be able to go to these charities, to this educational institution and give people the money and see where the money is going. So I'm very intentional about that. But right now I'm at home, um, so I'm just trying to sort out my mom's health and then I will proceed I think for me, what I also realized post-maiden is that sometimes you get just like thrown into, well, it's not really getting thrown into the deep end, but you get swayed by so many opinions. For me, I've only had one dream for sailing and that is to sail around the world solo. So I was getting further and further away from that. So now the intention is to bring myself back and start what you call short-handed sailing training. So once I'm, I'm a sorted out mom, then that's the focus and trying to build towards that. Yes, if there's expeditions where I can assist, I'll definitely do that. Amazing. And I think it's amazing yeah. how you have managed to sort of align your career as a skipper on a yacht and, and as a maritime professional with your values. And it's something that we've spoken a lot about in the course of this podcast and series one and series two are people who, mm -hmm. who are doing that, who see their work as both, you know, a maritime professional, but also that the role within the wider world and, and a big focus for us at Nautilus is around this idea of a just transition. So, you know, talk going back again to climate change you know, we know that the industry is going to have to decarbonize. It's going to have to um, look at how it, yeah. it, it does things differently. But we also have to make sure that the people are looked after as well and that people don't exactly. don't suffer as, as we move to that sort of decarbonize, you know, net zero world. So, yeah, I think I think that's incredible. Yeah, no. Um, so also, sorry, I forgot to mention post-Maiden, um, I got to be part of the judging panel for World Sailing for the Sustainability Award. So while you're talking about decarbonizing and stuff like that, so I am grateful to also have platforms like that where mm. I can still push the agenda forward. 
And I'm incredibly grateful to everybody in Maritime that is doing their part because being part of the panel actually exposed me to how many people are actually doing their part. It's just that, yes, maybe that award only recognizes one person, but there's a lot of movement that is being done like on a daily basis. It's all hands on deck, you know, it's just a matter of time for us to get to the other side. And I suppose we'll finish on, on one final thing. If you could send a message, I suppose, to, you know, let, let, let's say young African women who, who like you at 16, who have a fear of the ocean, what advice would you give to them? I think it's the same one that my mom gave me that, like, you need to try everything, like, in in pursuit of your dreams, like, leave no stone unturned, like, and failure is not an issue and no is not an issue. Like the more you try those, those are just words. They become just words, you know, you keep going forward until you find something that makes your, your heart skip a beat, you know? And once you find that everything just comes into alignment. Incredible. Lungi, thank you so much. Thank you. So Helen, what did you make of that? Really interesting, again, a really interesting, but quite a different story, I think, this podcast. And this is probably quite typical of our members who work in the yacht sector, right, which is a big and growing uh, section of our membership. I think there's something like 30,000 yacht crew around the world and, and, you know, it's certainly a growing area for us, as I said, but a different type of working arrangement, I guess. So work six months of the year when the weather is good and the work is plentiful, and then perhaps move to a shoreside role for the other six months of the year. And the fact that Lungi combines that with her outreach work on behalf of female seafarers and trying to encourage um, more women into the industry and to um, pick up these skills and to have adventures of their own, I think it's just a really really, really um, nice story and probably very reflective of what a lot of our members in this sector try to do. Yeah. And, you know, talking to Lungi was just, it was a complete pleasure. I mean, the positivity just, you know, it just seeps through. It was just, right. it was so wonderful and so inspirational. And also, you know, the work that she's doing now around sustainability and shipping, you know, we've seen this, I think, from a lot of our guests who take, mm. you know, their passions for sustainability, for other things and work with the maritime industry as well. And I always think it's it's great to see those worlds sort of coming together. I think that's really, you know, inspiring in so many ways. And, and as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, you know, that idea of feeling the fear and do it anyway you know I think is always an inspirational story when someone says I was really really scared but I give it a go um, and actually it's turned out to be this fantastic thing that has sort of changed their trajectory in life so yeah, yeah. it was fantastic yeah really really uplifting wasn't it and, and and it really resonates with me as well because we can if we choose to be held back by our fears and our worries can't we but oftentimes if we do find the courage to just get ourselves out there and give it a go we realize that we can actually achieve a lot more than what we might have 
you know, imagined. And she's been in some pretty extreme environments, you know, having to be rescued in the middle mm. of the ocean and jump into Arctic, freezing Arctic yeah. waters yeah. for that air rescue that she described. I mean, that is kind of beyond most people's imagination of a situation that they would ever find themselves in. And yet she looks back on it with a laugh and yeah. with a positivity and yeah. with, you know, a sense of achievement is probably the wrong word, but it's, it's a sense of, of getting through it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, and almost yeah. quite a calmness about that extreme yeah. situation. So, yeah, a really inspiring yeah. person and, and a really inspiring view of life and its opportunities. Exactly. So that's it, folks. I mean, what more do you say? This has been the third episode of Series 2. Again, thank you so much for joining us again. We hope you're learning a lot and taking a lot of inspiration from these podcast episodes. So again, thank you so much for joining us. And as I always like to say, do join a union if you are thinking of going to sea or in fact, if you're a maritime professional looking to move from the sea to ashore, do consider joining a union. Um, And particularly... Going by this episode, if you're in the super yacht industry or a yacht crew in um, any way, shape or form, Nautilus International is the union that is recognized for representing yacht crew internationally. Lots of like-minded crew members are part of members of Nautilus International, so do join us. Brilliant. Thank you so much. This episode was sponsored by Lloyd's Maritime Academy, providing a lifelong career pathway for maritime professionals. Thank you so much for joining us and see you next time. Mm -hmm.